0: Philippians 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible in front of you, you ought to find it on page 1250. Philippians chapter 4. I want to take us back in time this morning, nearly four centuries. So the year is 1642, long before any of us were born, although longer for some of us than others. Um, A pastor is stepping up in the pulpit to preach to his congregation in London, England. He is 43 years old and his name is Jeremiah Burroughs. He's preaching a series of sermons on one particular Christian virtue, that of Christian contentment. Now, I want to make sure that we really uh, set the scene here because this church did not gather as many American churches today at around 11 a.m. This church, which was called Stepney, had two pastors who shared the ministry. Burroughs would preach in the morning, and then the other pastor named William Greenhill would preach in the evening. And depending on your schedule, you would go to one or both of those services And so Greenhill was called the Evening Star of Stepney because he preached in the evening. Burroughs was called the Morning Star of Stepney. And when Burroughs got up to preach, it was around 7 a.m. That's when their morning service began, 7 a.m. Now, I'm not sure how many people were present that morning to hear him preach, but after his death, many of his sermons were collected and published And this particular series of sermons would become one of his most famous works. The publishers gave this work the title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it begins with Burroughs addressing the same text of Scripture that we're going to examine this morning. And Burroughs said of this passage in Philippians 4, he said to his congregation, this text contains a very timely Cordial, by which he meant a, a healing elixir, to revive the drooping spirits of the saints in these sad and sinking times. Now I want us to pause and compare the time in which we live to the 1640s. What Jeremiah Burroughs called these sad and sinking times. The, the past 380 years since then have been marked by fairly consistent progress in terms of science and technology. We have arguably a much better quality of life than the believers in Jeremiah Burroughs' day. We have automobiles and smartphones and air conditioning and Chick-fil-A, just to name a few examples. And so surely the, the jewel of Christian contentment is not as rare today as it was then, right? Surely there are far more... Believers today who find it easier to be content than in 1642, right? The answer is not necessarily. Contentment is just as elusive, just as rare today, if not more so than it was four centuries ago. And so what we need to be content is not an adjustment of our external situation. We can have a very, very easy, prosperous life and still lack contentment. What we need is not a good external situation. What we need is a renewal of our internal disposition by the Holy Spirit. We need to learn the same thing that God taught the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. So let's read together here in Philippians 4. We're going to begin in verse 10. Philippians 4 verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And, if, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift... that you would do in us the same thing you did in the life of Paul. And Lord, that we would be able to say with him that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work this in our hearts. We know that it will not be something that will happen quickly, but that day by day you would grow our capacity for contentment, And that we would adequately represent your wisdom and your goodness to those around us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to get something out of the way right out of the gate this morning before we go any further. And that is that if pastors could only condemn sins that we have dealt with decisively... And if we could only commend virtues that we have mastered definitively, there would be very little for pastors to say to the church. So I I am not speaking to you this morning as one who has achieved perfect proficiency in the art of contentment. I'm speaking to you as one who desires to be able to say, as Paul did, that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. When Jeremiah Burroughs preached his series of sermons on contentment some 380 years ago, he gave his congregation a definition of contentment, which I think we might still find helpful this morning. So I want to show this to you and let us sort of ruminate on this together this morning. He said that Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit "...which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition." That is very, very dense. So I'll read it again. "...Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition." There are a few aspects of that definition that we're going to come back to this morning. But, but first, I just want, to, I want you to hear that contentment is about our will. It's a frame of spirit, which is a way of saying it's, it's a mindset, but it's something that we have to choose to do. Notice, it's a frame of spirit which freely submits to It's about submitting to and delighting in. So not just sort of resolving ourselves to the fact that, well, this is the way God deemed it to be, but that I'm going to positively delight in His wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, it makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world for an unbeliever to be discontent. Because an unbeliever is not actively trusting in God as Father. An unbeliever is not surrendering to God's fatherly wisdom, God's wise and fatherly disposal, as Burroughs put it. A discontented believer, however, should be a contradiction. Of course, they exist. Discontented believers do exist. Some of them are sitting in the pews this morning. One of them is standing behind the pulpit right now. But while it makes sense for an unbeliever to lack contentment, a discontented child of God is a contradiction. Because every believer can know that God is wise and fatherly in every condition. Contentment is about humbling ourselves enough to submit to that wisdom and that goodness and to delight in it. So we're going to keep that definition in our mind this morning, but what I want to do is we're going to look here at Philippians 4 because what Jeremiah Burroughs said may be very helpful, but it's not God-inspired in the way that Philippians 4 is. What we're going to find is that what Jeremiah Burroughs said is in fact a good summary of what Paul says here in Philippians 4. And so I want to draw out three truths about Christian contentment from what God says here in these verses. The first truth that I want to draw out is that contentment is a skill we can learn. Contentment is a skill that we can learn. This is seemingly unrelated at first, but um, sometime last year uh, I heard someone say they were talking about something totally unrelated. They were talking about anxiety. And they were talking about the fact that the Bible commands us not to be anxious. And the, the point that the, the person made was simply that anxiety is a sin. And he said, that's good news and bad news. The bad news is that a lot of us are anxious and so a lot of us are committing the sin of anxiety. But the good news is that a sin is something that we can do something about. A sin is something we can repent of, that we can confess to God, and that we can turn away from. If we think of anxiety as just something that happens to us, something that's outside of our control, then we're just sort of resolved to the fact that I guess I'm just an anxious person. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just the way I was born or the way I'm made or whatever. But when God says, don't be anxious... Well, then that that means that's something we can do about it. I want to think about contentment in the same same vein. It's important for us to understand that God commands us to be content. What that says to us, that God commands us to be content, that does not mean that contentment is going to be easy because God tells us a whole lot of things that we're supposed to do that are not easy, like make disciples of all nations. That's not easy. But He says, I'm going to be with you. So when God commands us to be content, He does that in Hebrews 13, 5. He says explicitly, be content with what you have. What that means is that contentment may not be easy, but it is something that a child of God can and should expect to be able to do by God's grace and the power of the Spirit. In this passage, twice, Paul says that he has learned to be content. Notice what he says in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I have learned to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So apparently, contentment was not something that came naturally to Paul. It was not something that just sort of happened automatically. It's not like before Paul came to Christ he was discontent and then on the Damascus Road the Holy Spirit did a work in Paul's life and then he never struggled with it again. He says, I have learned. It's a secret, he says, that he had to learn, which means that it's not natural. It's not automatic and yet God commands us to do it and so it must be possible It's a skill that any child of God can learn by His grace. And so it would be easy for us to think wrongly of contentment. So here's a bad way we could think about contentment. We could think of it as as if it were merely the product of a certain kind of temperament or demeanor. In other words, we think, okay, some people, they're just naturally level-headed they just, they're just chill. They go with the flow, whatever, man, you know. Others are more high-strung and difficult to please. Now that's true. There are some people who have a naturally calm demeanor. They just go with the flow. Nothing really ruffles their feathers. And some people are just tightly wound. But there is a difference between a sort of naturally easygoing demeanor and genuine Christian contentment. Contentment is something that every Christian is commanded to pursue, and by God's grace it is within the reach of every follower of Christ. So what I'm trying to get out of the way right here is to say I don't want anybody to be exempting themselves here and thinking, well, you know, that, that might work for some people, but it's just it's just not my personality. It's not about whether it's your personality or not. It's about God's commanded you to be content. And so, are you going to pursue this skill? Are you going to try to learn this secret, or are you just not going to listen to what God says in His Word? So, the first thing is that contentment is a skill we can learn. Second, contentment is a gift we can receive. It's a skill we can learn, and at the same time, it is a gift we can receive. So when I say it's a skill we can learn, that does not mean that we have to work at it ourselves, we have to figure it out on our own, but it's a skill we can learn by God's grace. In his definition of Christian contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs described contentment as a gracious frame of spirit. And he was using the word gracious in a slightly different way than we tend to use it today today. When we describe someone as gracious, we mean that they are kind, that they're hospitable or courteous or generous or something along those lines. But when Burroughs said that 400 years ago, he meant that it is a result of God's grace. So he was describing contentment as a frame of spirit, a sweet, inward, quiet frame of spirit that comes about by God's grace. So it's a, it's a skill we can learn, but it's not something that we pursue in our own strength. It comes about by the grace of God. That is certainly in line with what Paul says here in Philippians 4. Look at verse 13. After he's just said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and to abound. And I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and so forth. He says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Philippians 4:13 is one of those verses that we need to put in the hall of fame of here is a classic example of why we need to keep Bible verses in their context because Philippians 4:13 has been taken to mean all kinds of things that neither Paul nor the Holy Spirit ever intended it to mean. When Paul says I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We have to hear that in the context of what he's just said in verse 12. I wish that I could 360 slam dunk a basketball, but I can't. I cannot do that thing. If Jesus wanted me to, He could make me do it, but He has not seen fit to do that. Okay. And that is not what Paul's talking about. We have to hear it in the context of what he's just said in verse 12. He says, "I can be brought low and I can abound. I can face plenty and hunger. I can face abundant and abundance and need. I can do all these things. I can be content in all these circumstances through him who strengthens me." So Paul attributes his contentment to the grace of the one who enables him to be content. And God's grace toward Paul is magnified because of all things. Imagine if Paul had said, I can do most things. I can be content in most circumstances. You've probably seen those commercials, the AT&T commercials that are on right now where, you know, okay is not okay, you know, where the doctor comes in, and well, it's going to be okay. That's not what you want to hear. I'm an okay surgeon. You don't want to hear that from the guy who's about to open you up. You want to hear absolute confidence, full on. I can do this, right? Paul doesn't say, yeah, I think I, think I, can, I can do okay at most things. He says, I can do all things. I can be content in all circumstances through Him who strengthens me. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It is the variety of the circumstances that makes God's strengthening grace so amazing. Now, when we think about those things, He he, he talks about being brought low and abounding, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's easy for us to imagine why Paul would need God's grace to strengthen him to be content in difficult circumstances. We, yeah, we, we know that Paul needs God's help to be content in uh, being brought low and in hunger and need. But he says that he's learned the secret of being content in all these things, in the what we would see as negative circumstances and also in the positive circumstances. What we need to, I mean, and and when you stop and think about it, we all intuitively know this. It is just as difficult to be content in good circumstances as it is in hardships. This is true from the time we're little kids. This, you know, we just had Christmas, and, you know, we're, 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 I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, and you've seen this in maybe your own children or grandchildren. You know, there's opening the present. Wow, what's next? What else is there? Well, you just got an amazing toy, and yet you're wondering what's next. We we can take Nixon sometimes. He loves to ride the merry-go-round and the Dothan Mall, and he'll be you know on the riding the gorilla, and he's constantly looking looking around, saying, "What am I going to ride next? I think next I might ride the dragon, or next I might ride the leopard." And what I try to say to him is, buddy, enjoy the fact that you're riding the gorilla right now. Don't think about what's next. It is, it is just as difficult to be content in good circumstances as it is in hardships. There are plenty of people in this world who have way more money than you or me will ever have and have way more worldly success than we'll ever have, but who are terribly, terribly unhappy. And there are people in this world who have far less than you and me, yet who are far more content than we are. Contentment is a skill that we can only learn through the one who strengthens us, which is to say, contentment is a gift of God's grace. So it's a skill we can learn. It's a gift we can receive. Third, contentment is a community effort. Contentment is a community effort. We don't often think of contentment this way. But I want you to see how Paul says this in Philippians 4. Sometimes one of the most profound things you can do when reading your Bible is simply not to stop at the end of one sentence or one paragraph, but to move straight from one thought to another. Every word in this book is breathed out by God, but your Bible has chapter divisions and has headings over different sections. That stuff is not God-inspired. It was added by translators to help us so that I can say, open to Philippians 4.10, and we all know exactly where to go. That stuff's helpful, but sometimes it's helpful to just go straight from one sentence to the next or straight from one paragraph to the next. I want to illustrate this. Notice the transition from verse 13 to verse 14. I'm just going to read straight through, and I want you to hear the difference that there is when you read these two verses together than when you separate them. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. This whole passage is really about how God met Paul's needs through the generosity and kindness of the church in Philippi. This church, perhaps more than any other church, had supported Paul. They had prayed for Paul. They had supported him financially. He's writing this letter to them from prison. He had spent some time in a Philippian jail at one time, and in fact... Most likely, the church in Philippi was birthed from that moment. You can go back and read that story in Acts. Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi. It's midnight, and there they are singing hymns, singing songs of praise to God. They're in the most difficult of circumstances, and yet they are perfectly content. They're singing songs of praise to God. And an earthquake happens and the jail breaks loose. And the jailer, thinking that all the prisoners have escaped, takes out a sword and he's about to kill himself until Paul shouts out, Hey, we're still here. So the jailer goes downstairs. He had been listening to them sing those songs all night long, perfectly content, even though they were in shackles. And he sees them there and he asks them the question, What must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to have the kind of contentment that you have in your life? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's where the Philippian church was birthed out of. The reason there are believers for Paul to write this letter from a different prison is because of that moment many years earlier when he expressed contentment in the Lord in that Philippian jail. And that man heard that audible sound of their contentment and he said, I need to know where this comes from because I've got to get some of that. And so here he is writing this letter to these people who have loved him and who have supported him. And what he's saying to them is, listen, I've learned that God's going God's to meet my needs however he sees fit. And yet it sure was kind of you to share my trouble. He he trusts God. I trust God to give me exactly what I need in every circumstance. I've learned to be content in that. Yet at the same time, he sees how God has worked through the Philippian believers to supply the very things He needed. He says of them in verse 14 that they have shared in His trouble, which means they have participated in His trouble They did not keep their distance. They communicated through their words and deeds that they were with Paul, that he was not alone, and God used that kindness to strengthen him. So God has supplied His needs through their love. So what this means for us is that contentment is not about depending on ourselves. There are plenty of psychologists in the world today who will tell you that contentment comes from discovering that you have everything you need in yourself. Whatever that is, it's not Christian contentment. Christian contentment is a glad dependence on God first and foremost. It's about being dependent on someone and being glad about it, delighting in it first and foremost, on the wisdom of God and the strength of God. And that wisdom and strength are often displayed through other believers, which means that contentment is about being glad that we have to depend on one another. We need one another. Pride and contentment are at odds with one another. Pride says, I can handle this. I've got this. I can do this in my strength. Contentment says, I can only do this through Him who strengthens me. And I know that He strengthens me many times through His people. So to be content means that I have to humble myself enough to be vulnerable with other followers of Christ. It means that there will be times when we may need to help each other with tangible needs. Yesterday, we had a tree fall on our driveway. We weren't going to be able to get out of our yard because the yard was soggy. So I texted Chad and said, hey, how are y'all doing? He said, we're good. How are y'all? I said, we got a tree over our yard. He said, you need some help. I said, I think we might need some help. He said, okay, we're on our way. I could have said, no, I can handle this. I can, you know, call somebody or I can figure it out, whatever. But here comes Chad with his chainsaw helping get the tree off of our driveway. So that's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, that we need one another. Sometimes that's with tangible needs. It certainly means that we'll need to pray for one another, not just about physical needs, but about spiritual matters as well. What I'm trying to say is that we cannot, at the same time, exercise contentment in the Lord and at the same time try to do everything on our own and manage everything on our own and not share anything with anyone else. As Paul told the Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we're going to look at some practical ways that we can pursue contentment. I want to try to say, okay, um, how do we work on contentment if we see that that's an area where we need to... uh, to grow. But I want us to spend the last few minutes today with some self-examination. So before we can pursue contentment, I think it would be helpful for us to pause and ask what are some ways that we express our discontentment? So what, in other words, I'm trying to help you diagnose yourself and look in your own heart and your own life and say, okay, where do I see discontentment in my life because those are going to be the areas where I'm going to need to pursue contentment. So I want to give you four common expressions of discontentment. First is covetousness. This is maybe the most obvious way that we see contentment expressed Covetousness, we, we see what someone else has, whether it's a physical possession or a relationship or a status, and then we suddenly find ourselves discontent with what we have. In fact, it's helpful to be reminded that there are people whose job it is to make you discontent. I mean, seriously, there are people whose job it is to advertise products, whether it's on TV or in the newspaper or on social media. And they're, they, they get paid to make you think that your life will not be fulfilled unless you have this car, this gadget, this clothing item, this lifestyle, this trip, fill in the blank. And by the way, social media is a cesspool of discontentment, isn't it? Because everybody is saying, look at how great my life is. And we look at it and we say, well, my life doesn't seem as great as that person's life. When in reality, their life isn't that great either. But they're just trying to make you think it is. So, we have an economy of discontentment. And we have a culture of discontentment in our society today. It's helpful for us to see that so that we can do something about it. So, covetousness is one way. A second way is consistent dissatisfaction. Now, all of these are really closely related, um, but what I mean here is the first one is about being discontent with what we have. This one is about more about being discontent with who we are. Not just what we have, but who we are. So see if any of these thoughts ring a bell. I'm not thin enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not pretty enough or handsome enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not outgoing enough. Fill in the blank. I'm not blank enough. That's what I mean here. We constantly feel that God has given us the short straw. Why didn't you make me as charismatic as that person? Why didn't you make me as smart as that person? Why didn't you make me uh, like that person who can you know, eat terribly and still be thin or whatever it is? Why didn't you make me like that person who can slam dunk a basketball? I don't know. There is this internal restlessness that we think we can fix with a new diet, a new routine, a new job, a new blank, whatever. If only I had this, then I would be blank enough. When the truth is that even if we had that thing, even if that were true of us, we would still find a way to be dissatisfied in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. So, a consistent dissatisfaction. A third way we express our discontentment is through selfish ambition. Again, all of these are intertwined. But this one is about never being satisfied with the standing that we have in the eyes of other people. There's nothing wrong with, uh, there's a you know, kind of a holy ambition that we can have. There's nothing wrong with trying to be the best at your job or whatever it may be. But this is about just trying to advance for the sake of advancing because we are concerned with how other people view us. So this can be at our job, and our home. This can even happen in the church. We pursue more influence, more recognition at the expense of others. Rather than seeking to to serve, we seek to be served. We act not out of love but out of a a desire to control. Here's a, a good way you could diagnose this. Uh, if, if you were asked, whether it's at your job or at home or in, in the church, if you were called upon to do some kind of really menial task, if, if I came to you after the service and said, hey, um, this toilet down here needs scrubbing, can you scrub it? If you think it's beneath you, then you might be guilty of this one or at your job. If, if somebody says, hey, I, you know, I need you to do this. I know it's not really exactly your job, but I need you to do it. If you think it's beneath you, then, then you might be struggling with some of this selfish ambition. This is where we see people, not as created in God's image and worthy of empathy and kindness, but we see them as objects to be used for our own advancement. No matter where we are, we desire prominence and recognition. We want other people to, to see us and to recognize us and to celebrate us. That's A third way. A fourth way we express our discontentment is through sinful complaining. Sinful complaining. And the adjective sinful is very important. Um, There's nothing wrong with lodging a reasonable, just complaint when something serious has been done wrong. If a crime's been committed, by all means call the police. If an employee is guilty of misconduct, by all means tell somebody who can do something about it and so on when I say sinful complaining, I'm thinking more along the lines of what Jeremiah Burroughs called murmuring. So here's one way we could distinguish murmuring from sinful complaint, or, or murmuring from a, a reasonable, just complaint. A reasonable complaint is when I see something wrong, there is something that can be done about it, and I go and tell the person who can do something about it. That's a reasonable complaint. Murmuring is when I see something that just gets on my nerves and I complain to somebody who can't do anything about it. It's just kind of this consistent, constant, low-grade negativity that nags and grumbles because nothing is ever suitable to my exact tastes. You can usually see this kind of discontentment in every sphere of life. Again, see if any of these ring a bell. We complain because somebody pulled out in front of us in traffic or they get the parking space that we were gunning for and we don't stop to consider whether something might be going on in their life that has them distracted or in a hurry. Maybe the reason they pulled out in front of me in traffic is because they just got some kind of bad news and there's an emergency and they've got to get there. Maybe they're just being rude. I don't know. But it's, it's worth stopping and considering. We complain about the unruly child in the store or the restaurant, not stopping to consider what special need that child might have, not stopping to consider the fact that maybe that child's parents aren't giving him or her the attention that they need, or not stopping to think that maybe that child's parents are doing everything they can within their power, but sometimes kids are just unruly. We complain about the weight of the doctor's office, not stopping to consider the fact that maybe the doctors and nurses are are attending to some very urgent matter in another room, and they're not just keeping me waiting. I want to just encourage you. uh, We could sort of go on and on and spend ten sermons talking about that. But I want to encourage all of us just to do some self-examination over the course of this next week. Be aware of your thoughts, your words, attitudes, and actions, and examine How do I tend to express my discontentment? If you are anything like me, it's not going to be fun or comfortable, but we need to do this for the sake of Christ. So if you are a follower of Christ, discontentment in your life is telling a lie to the people around you about the God you claim to trust A discontented believer is a misrepresentation of God's character. Because when a believer is not content, what we're saying to those around us is, I cannot do all things through Him who strengthens me. Jesus is not strong enough for this circumstance. That's the lie that we're telling with our actions to people around us. If you're not a follower of Christ, your primary need this morning is not to try harder to be content with what you have. It's to find true satisfaction in Jesus. Trust in Him and surrender to Him. It's only when you have been united to Him by faith that we can truly say, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And I hope and pray uh, that this time of response this morning would just be the beginning of, of a time of reflection for us to examine our hearts and see um, how we can grow in this area. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and how You challenge us. God, that You, don't, you, you are not content to leave us in our sin, but Lord, that You desire for us to, to grow in our likeness to Your Son. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Each one of us, Lord, has work to do to examine ourselves and to see where we need to grow. And Lord, I know that as long as you give us life, we will be needing to grow in this area and in many others. And so, Lord, for those in this room, I pray that you would give us endurance. Uh, Lord, not to grow weary in doing good, but to uh, entrust this to you and to continue striving after You. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not in Christ, I pray that they would put every thought of trying to work harder to rest, and that they would simply come to Jesus, that they would trust in Him, look to Him in faith, and receive the gift that He is ready to give. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.